0: Hello, and welcome to the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very excited to host Dr. Sarah Jane Severnack today. Dr. Sarah Jane Severnack is an associate professor jointly appointed in the Women's and Gender Studies programs and in the African-American and African Diaspora Studies programs Excuse me, at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Her most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, is titled Black Gathering, Arts of Ungiven Life, and it's out from Duke University Press. It queries the Black radical feminist potential of gathering in post-1970s Black literary and visual arts. She is the author of Wandering, Physi- Philosophical Performances of Racial and Sexual Freedom, also out from Duke University Press, and she is co-editing a series with Jay Cameron Carter for Duke University Press called Black Outdoors, Innovations, in the Poetics of Study. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Sebranek. Thank you so much, Dr. Edmonds. It's a privilege. All right. So why don't we just jump right in? Can you just maybe first, let's just start with hearing a bit about the book? Sure, sure. So um, the book began as
1: an idea, as a concept of gathering, and um, in relationship to actually a very specific work of art um, or actually in relationship to a specific artist, which is Leonardo Drew, who who I talk about in chapter four. The book's ideas actually, yeah, start with Drew. Um, Leonardo Drew um, had an exhibition at uh, the Weatherspoon Art Museum, which is the art museum on UNCG's campus. And he is an abstract sculptor. um, And uh, I think in the beginning of his career, um, gathered, found objects, um, and um, sort of rearranged them into abstract sculptures. But um, but but largely, he sort of moved from that to artificially degrading or weathering objects so they look disposed of, and then creating arrangements from that. But the but the larger questions that I was um, really moved by that were evoked by Drew's work were, you know, what are what are the stakes of um, an arrangement that bears these traces of disposability and decay um, as um, actually generating new life, new possibilities, right? And how is it that gathering makes that possible? One of the other things I noticed with Drew's work is that he, and this is um, the curator of that exhibit, um, Claudia Schmuckley also noted this is that he uses materials that have historical resonance, um, and, and, um, that bear the trace of, um, uh, you know, anti-Black subjection. So in one of his pieces, which I talk about in the book, there's the use of rope. Um, and, um, in another piece, um, uh, that I remember, but that I didn't actually, uh, speak of, um, in the book was the, he arranged empty cotton, bags, um, and they were charred and they were sort of arranged into this sort of mountainous, um, um, shape. And so one of the challenges I thought of his work was how do you, how do you comport towards this arrangement as new possibility, right? As on the one hand, um, you know, sort of the, The interpretive, there's an interpretive desire to think about, okay, so he's using objects that bear, um, you know, resonance with um, histories of violence, right? Particularly um, uh, uh, racial subjection. But on the other hand, when he arranges them, the art is asking you to kind of reimagine it apart from category and also apart from the history that it bears. Um, and one of the questions that I sort of had, and this was in 2012, was thinking about is, okay, so in what way, thinking about Drew as a Black artist, who, for whom um, questions of race and class and disposability um, kind of animate his, um, um, or drive some of his particular choices and where he um rearranges for example um thinking about his um work in brazil um what does it mean to to how is it that um his gathering gesture enacts an, uh, enacts another possibility of black freedom right and so that 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 emerges precisely in um the a sort of um that emerges precisely, um, trying to think about the word, I'm sorry, the, um, with these sort of categories under erasure, right? Actually in the aftermath of history. So the question is like, you know, what is it about his gatherings that, um, engender something like a release, whether it be, um, a release from subjection, um, a release from objecthood, et cetera. And so all of these questions really prompted me to think about gathering as another kind of question um, that I saw moving within, um, uh, black visual arts and as another sort of aesthetic strategy of freedom making. And it was, it's sort of akin to how I approach, um, my intellectual practice. Anyway, my first book was organized sort of around a key term wandering. And so gathering felt like, um, it felt, Gathering felt like the second term to join Wandering because they, I was thinking about them at the same time.
0: Yeah, no, that's so fascinating. I love, I love hearing that your practice, your sort of scholarly practice grew out of deep engagement at first with just a single artist. And then you started sort of elaborating questions across sort of visual arts practices and then into the literary world. And I hope that we can talk about some of those connections as we move forward. Um, but my first question is just thinking, just kind of wanting to sit um, with the single artist for a second. And I'm curious, have you shared your work um, with this sculptor? Um, have you been able to, I don't know, um, think about his sort of material practice alongside your theoretical one and to think about the implications of that. And one of the reasons I'm curious about this question is just because it seems to me that you move back and forth between those realms quite often in your work. Um, So
1: I have it. No, I mean, he, um, you know, he's obviously granted permission for use of the images. Um, and so, and his, and my writings are in his archive. Um, so not with Drew in particular, but, um, the poets that I wrote about, um, uh, they all, um, I've had direct communication with them and, you know, and, and, Has shared writing at various stages, to be like, I hope this is okay, and I hope this does justice um, to what you're doing, Um, because that was important to me, that to know, for the poets, well, you know, part of also um, uh, my practice, too, is... (laughs) I like to send emails to people who, you know, I'm like, if I'm a fan of your writing or if you am a fan of your art, I'll, you know, send an email. And um, when I was getting close to finishing my writing, for example, a uh, Nikki walsh poems, I contacted her sort of through Twitter and then we exchanged information. And so I have shared um, the writing with the poets actually most directly. And, um, particularly Samir Bashir, Gabrielle Rolambo-Rogerison and Nikki Walschlager and sent them, you know, obviously books when the book came out, um, and really looking forward to them reading them. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, and then, um, you know, Gail Jones, um, I'm a huge fan of Gail Jones. I mean, I dedicated the book to her and, um, and went to her archive, but I also want to respect, um, her privacy as well. Um, and, uh, Clementine Hunter, um, is unfortunately deceased, but I was, um, had been in touch with her estate.
0: So, okay. No, that's great. Um, well, I guess, you know, before we dig into this a bit further, I wonder if you could tell us just a bit more about, about black gathering, about how you define the term, about how you distinguish it from other forms of Black collectivity, about whether or not there are different kinds of Black gathering, right? Because what you just described, you know, how you're interacting with, with the artists who are in your book sounds to me like a form of gathering, right? And that seems to maybe be distinct from some of the forms that you describe in your book. So I wonder if you could just give us, give us a picture of that concept and how it's working in your, in your monograph.
1: Black gathering itself conceptually is an opening, right it's a not an enclosed um uh, it's not an enclosed figuration and i think when i uh, originally um, began to think about gathering in relationship to sort of black social life um and um sort of you know earthly um Um, political agitations against anti-Blackness, I was thinking also about Black Lives Matter, right? And um, Black political assembly. And so I began with Leonardo Drew, but then I started to think about die-in protests um, and actually had written about Erica Garner's um, die-in protest um, in honor of her father, Eric, and um, thinking about... um, the protest space as a modality of black gathering, but also as articulating a notion of gathering um, that um, that kind of ex- exceeds or resists certain um, definitions of gathering that I was seeing emerge out of a philosophical archive. And so I was looking at, for example, Judith Butler's um, notes towards a performative theory of assembly. And I was trying to think about assembly in relationship to the question of the performative and then black gathering as a political practice in real space and time, like on the streets in protest. Um, but then decided to move back to the aesthetic and to stay with visual and literary representations. um, Because it, for me, that's really where the heart of the book lies, was thinking about the aesthetic practice of gathering. Gathering as both, and I say this in the book, the enactment of an environment, right, um, by um, Black writers. And then um, in the second half of the book, black gathering as an aesthetic practice of bringing together, but one that's always moving against um, various notions of enclosure so that the word itself kind of bears an energetics and an activity that's undecidable, right? Like to even hear the word gathering, it's, well, what, what in what sense are we talking? Gathering as a noun, right? Gathering as in um, describing like an entity or gathering as a verb. Right, a bringing together. And I think that kind of the fact that the word itself has that undecidability um, is instructive. Um, you know, and one of the other, um, you know, one of the things that I, I was important for me to say this in the book, right, um, and in the introduction in particular, you know, as a, as a scholar, as a white scholar, right, in Black studies, is to not presume that Black gathering exists as this knowable right aesthetic concept Um, and, and to think about how a resistance to sort of kind of determinisms around this is black gathering. This is, you know what I mean? Um, Is also a kind of, you know, Um, a challenge on a sort of, um, of, you know, whiteness as methodological certitude, right? This kind of like knowing, you know, um, which, you know, has long and terrible histories, right? And instead, as a student of Black studies, um, which I understand myself to be, to think about how Black artists and writers have long been imagining modes of relation on and with earth that have moved against um, the forms of domination that are slowly killing the planet, right? Um and and to and to honor and acknowledge that learning in the book.
0: Yeah, you know, I love that. you know, I really want to highlight something that you said, which is, um, you called it the undecidability of the word gathering. And I really like that you're working, you're working in the pluralism of that word and that concept. And I especially love how you said this because it crystallized something for me um, that I noticed when you're reading your book, but couldn't quite put into words. I like that you you described gathering as an enactment of an environment, right? Something that an artist might be doing through their work, right? But then also a kind of practice of bringing together and that sort of being also something that's happening through, through the work, right? And so both of those things are working kind of dialectically to. Um, to enact this practice. And so I just, I thought that was a really beautiful way of, of capturing something that's really um, at the forefront of your book and and just so present in so many of your chapters. And I want to use that to kind of maybe pivot to talking about your, your, uh, your subtitle there, The Arts of Ungiven Life. And so we got, maybe we have an understanding of gathering, but for readers who, or for listeners who haven't picked up your book yet, can you talk a little bit about ungivenness or givenness and, and what that means to your theorization.
1: Sure. And I should say that that subtitle was an earlier iteration that the final one was art ecology, ungiven life. I think uh, that, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but apologies I like that, for that. No. And you know what? I actually like that you bring up the former one um, because ecology wasn't in the original subtitle, but I love that you brought up the former one because it's pretty much for me, the same, uh, it's the same conceptually. Um, but I, um, yeah, the ungiven, is that what you would like me to kind of dwell with a bit?
0: Yeah, I think, I think givenness shows up this idea of being given or ungiven shows up in each of your chapters. Right. And it it seems to me to be quite central to this idea you have about gathering and the sort of work it does. I mean, you say that it's a, it's an aesthetic concept, but, but it's mobilized often sort of far beyond the realm of the aesthetics. And so I wonder if if, if givenness is a, is a key to that, or uh, I don't know, I was just, I was very sort of struck by it. I hadn't heard that language before. And so I figured it might be good to talk about.
1: Yeah, yeah. thank you for the question. It's great. I mean, you know, it comes out of, it's a resistance to Locke. Right? I mean, it's this idea of, you know, for Locke, right? The condition, the possibility of his notion of, you know, white democratic self-possession, which was always mobilized by anti-Blackness and anti-Earthness, was the notion of the earth as given over. But for Locke, and that key question about his sort of, you know, instrumental role in the, um, you know, he's a colonizer. He was active in the at Carolina colony and um, like writing the charter for the colony. And so the given overness of Black people is implicit, right, in um, the logic of the earth being given over, those two sort of were interchangeable for Locke. And so, one of the things that you know I learned in you know engaging and reading writers like Gail Jones, for example, is there's an experiment. T- tel- there's sort of an experimentalized um, engagement with beginning again, right? So if Locke said all the world began with the American, if all the world began with a notion of earth and flesh is given over, then what would another beginning look like that presumes the ungivability of either, right? That earth is not neither earth nor people are given to anyone. Right. And so, um, Jones, um, in Corrigidora, and that's not actually not a book that I, um, uh, spend time with in the chapter on Jones, though. I, I, I do signal it in the intro, um, does that work, right? Um, it kind of enacts that imagining. And, you know, I think too, like with the writers like, um, I mean, more, I mean, every Morrison, Toni Morrison, Nikki Walshlager, Samia Bashir, Gabriel. Well, and I can talk about what they each do with ungivenness, but, you know, Morrison, um, Toni Morrison in particular, when she's writing about Beloved talks about it as basically a house that it comes up and then is, and is, you know, um, dissipates. Right. And so it's not a house that, um, stays around. It's not a house that, um, could be enclosed, right. Or could work as a modality of enclosure. And, you know, and one of the things I noticed too, and even rereading, I mean, I've read beloved so many times is that the book originally was, um, Um, lent to baby Suggs, you know, and not actually given. It was a borrowed house. So it was already sort of like ungiven as a home. Um, And, you know, I think the way that Morrison engages with um, sort of the fleeting, the fleeting, right? In terms of relationality among mothers and children, you know, that this was always like, it was it was always precarious it was always tenuous in time for a moment right um that um nobody really had each other for a permanent there was no there was an impermanence right um that kind of characterized beloved both as an experiment in relationality right um with the child coming back to be with the mother and then to leave again right but also in an experiment with home Right, a way to um, live in a home that kind of refuses to be one. In the way that home kind of gets associated with enclosure and protection and stability. I mean, the home was always kind of clamoring, you know, um, telling the world that it wasn't one, right? Or it was always more than one. Or was, you know, it was more than property. Um, And so, and so. What I was curious about was what ungiven opens up, and I also, you know, I was thinking about this a lot, Brittany. Like even before our conversation, like, well, what is on? Un- like, what is un? Like, what does undo? And I wonder if un as a sort of um, prefix or modifier of give suggests a priorness to giving, right? Like that there's that um, that the beginnings that were, for example, sanctioned by you know, the white enlightenment um, philosophies of Locke and Kant and others were actually like, they were belated. They followed some other kind of beginning, some other kind of relationality, which we know to be true, right? And that, um, uh, you know, Fred Moten, I remember he was giving a talk and says that normativity is an after effect, right? It always precedes the thing that it's responding to. And I think that home and I think enclosure and Lockean beginning are also after effects, right? Of modes of relation and ways of being together that that weren't about um, ownership and they weren't about these kinds of transactional modalities of relation where one had another to use
0: as one pleased,
1: right? They're about other ways of being together that were non-extractive.
0: No, that's really great. Um, so so givenness or ungivenness is really trying to think about and position this idea of Black gathering sort of prior to these Enlightenment politics of, or excuse me, projects of colonization and dominion. No, I love that. Um, so I want to ask a couple of more questions just about the structure of the book, and then we're going to dig into the meat of it. Uh, but I did want to say that, you know, while you were speaking, um, especially the beginning of your answer to this question about givenness, I thought about... Um, Toni Morrison's novel, A Mercy, just because, you you know, the uh, the main character whose name I'm forgetting, but she gives right her daughter away to this to this white man. She entrusts her daughter to this white man. And I think use the language of that in order to try to secure for her a better life. And I was just, I don't know if you've, if you've thought about that book in relationship to this, to this question of, of givenness or ungivenness. And it's, it's definitely not, right, in doing so, she is not sort of obviously contributing to a project of either colonization or dominion. She's resisting those projects. But it seemed like a very just sort of interesting book that might be in conversation with some of the ideas you're talking about. But anyway, oh, sorry. But oh, no, no, no. It's okay. Actually,
1: And I, and to be completely transparent, it's a book I need to still get to. A Mercy uh, yeah. and Paradise are like up there for me as like books I have to get to when I have not yet. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. And those would both be books I'd be, you know, incredibly interested to see what you had to say about them, you know, because Paradise is obviously about sort of four women who are outcasts, right, sort of gathered in this abandoned home and making sort of renewed use of it in a way that is Deeply challenging to a town that's in the throes of transformation, right? That is warring already within itself.
1: Right, right, right. I Yeah, I
0: think it'd be great for you. Yeah,
1: no, I'm excited. It's a book I start and then I put down a start again. And so I have to get back <laughs> there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, where I wanted to go is I wanted to hear a bit. So we had two things to do uh, before we get into your chapters. So I wanted to hear a bit about you know, your book's relationship to, to eco-criticism, because as you pointed out, you do have ecology in that, in that subtitle there. Um, and then I wanted to hear about um, just the book's organization. It's organized into two parts, and I want to hear about what those two parts are doing. Sure. So um, with respect to eco-criticism, you know, I see the book
1: as in conversation with scholars who um, are thinking about extraction in the context of post-colonial theory and thought. So like Macarena Gomez-Barris, um, but also, um, who think about, uh, black ecology as both a formal and conceptual question. So, um, uh, Renee Gladman, poet Renee Gladman and scholar Sonia Postmentier think about, uh, ecology, the ecology, of a poem or the ecology of a sentence, and thinking particularly about for Sonia Posmentier, um black poetry um and, and the ecological possibility of black poetry, right? As 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 ways of of on the page imagining relation, right? Um I think I see myself, well, I hope that my book um, is thought about in conversation with great books um, um uh like by Joshua Bennett um Camille Dungy also the forthcoming work on black feminist ecology by Chelsea Fraser um and so Joshua Bennett's um on being property once myself um really is an amazing book um, about, you know, black literature, the ecological, um, sort of the, the way black literary, um, texts and black authors are thinking about the ecological as an important question for black studies and for black writers. So thinking about, um, the ways in which, um, you know critically engaging the earth uh, moves towards a black liberatory practice and black liberatory desire and so his book i think is phenomenal and he too thinks about black ecology in the context of literary analysis mm. um and so you know one of the things even though i i start with nathan hare because you know i really want to associate cuz the term Black Ecology, notably, um, you know, is the title of his 1973, um, I believe a 73 um, essay and where he's, you know, indicting environmental racism um, and the way that it goes sort of unrecognized um, by, by white, um, sort of governmental, uh, environmental agencies, um, I think was super, you know, crucial. And one of the things I wanted to say was the ways in which, you know, um, writers like Hare, Dorsetta Taylor, literally to, to think about the way environmental racism works is to, is, um, uh, to talk about how, Um, black gatherings were precisely policed in favor of um, centering and sanctioning white people's right to gather, right? So black gatherings were always seen as sort of pollutant, as contaminating, as endangering, right, white purity, um, white people's rights to social spaces. And so I wanted to acknowledge that the kind of the root of that term and the way it travels, and also to say that um, you know where I see my book is kind of in conversation with, you know, Camille Dungy's Black Nature, with with um, you know indebted to um, writers who look at African American literary traditions as um, really centering eco criticism and ecological analysis, but that often fall outside of what figured for a long time as the eco critical, right? Um, and so, so, you know, um, uh, Diane Glaze's work, um, Kimberly Ruffin's work, which looks, does really fantastic eco-critical analysis of, um, key texts in an African American literary tradition. I'm indebted to those works. Right. And, um, you know, and hope would be honored if my book was on a syllabus alongside those works. I think for me, um, a key term even though ecology is something that I'm kind of like putting pressure on and expanding and then talk about the ways that black writers themselves are actually expanding the notion of the ecological uh, beyond what might figure as physical nature, right. Or the environmental, right. The outdoors. Um, um, I think that if, if I had to say a sort of intervention or a contribution it's around gathering as an aesthetic device that puts pressure and maybe expands our notion of the ecological. Right. Um, And, and, and I say this to say, because, you know, I was thinking about this a lot because I was like, well, okay. In the Gail Jones chapter, like I'm thinking about the Gail Jones chapter and I was like, well, the ecological ecology happens within the sentence, right? Quite literally, you know, the way Jones gathers words engenders environments, right? Where her characters can live. Um and so so I think it's about really you know um acknowledging the ways that for me um, the black writers that I've studied um, have opened up ecology and have done so through mobilizing the varied meanings of gathering, right. Um, where gathering and in the context of literature, right, um, where, you know, and, and, and I think, sorry, this is going to be the last thing, but I think, you know, the literary and the aesthetic um, in terms of the sculptural or, or installations, it, you know, are these are really important places precisely because of the ways in which um, Black public gatherings are so policed and so regulated and so under siege. And even now in that, that regulation and that policing, um, even heightened um, in the wake of the, you know, pandemic.
0: No, it's, I mean, I love, I love how you answered that because you're placing your own work within a, within a sort of zeitgeist within a moment where sort of black ecology as a concept is being sort of expanded all these, in all these different ways. You're crucially identifying your own intervention as being sort of opening up the aesthetic dimension as a place where we can think about sort of black relation to the environment um, into sort of issues of, of precarity, of um, colonization and so forth. So I think that that's a beautiful thing. And I loved hearing that you're in conversation with so many scholars who are working right now. Um, I wonder if you could tell us tell us about, about the organization of your own book, how, maybe how the sort of chapters sort of live within it. So you have sort of two parts, right? Uh-huh. Uh, that make up black gathering. And I wonder if you could tell us just a bit about the work they each respectively do. Yeah, sure. So
1: the the two parts are gatherings art and the art of gathering. And um, to kind of, you know, um, honor um, gatherings, kind of shape-shiftingness, um, really looking in the first part about how Black women writers um, enact gatherings quite literally on the page, right? Through... Um, and and to think about the possibility of black people gathering in um you know in the midst of um an owned world right an owned and police and regulated world and so you know tony morrison's beloved was always going to be i mean the clearing is an iconic scene of black gathering in african american literature and and but you know the more i read the book that i i there's all these ways in which when Morrison, I think is, um, enacting gathering on the page, it could be as large as multiple people in the same space together to other smaller kinds of togethernesses, right. Um, Setha and her two kids on the ice, right. Um, uh, when, when Setha's in labor with Denver and, you know, and she's, you know, and the spores are part of that gathering, right? And I think that Morrison really kind of challenges us as readers to think about the multiplicity of what gathering means um, when in the context of fugitivity, right? Um, and so, so right, so, so, you know, based on what Morrison herself said about Beloved as a book that was sort of alchemically kind of engendering, um, it's began as a door, right? And then something came out of that door made me think about how, what she's doing is quite literally the book. Sorry, my (laughs) cat, the book is, um, creating an environment for her characters. Right. And, and the, and the beautiful thing is the, the book bears its own protection, right? So that at the end, right. When, Um, Morrison instructs us that this should not be passed on. You know, for a long time, you know, the way that I heard that line interpreted was in the context of violence, right? But also what if the story quite literally ended with the characters so that what they made together, right? What the pages made together for those besieged characters was just for them, if that makes sense. And so it is for the reader, but then it's also kind of, the book contain is you know it's um it's a world within itself, right? Um. That can't be that can't be passed on, or maybe shouldn't be passed on. That there's something that the characters made together that, um, you know, the literary um moves to protect. Um, with Samia Bashir and Gabrielle Rolambo rogerison you know what I was interested in thinking about was um, the way those both of those writers th- thought about black ecology in in relationships to the galactic, right? So that, um, so sort of un- along kind of invisible lines, right, of like quantum energy and dark matter, and um, I, you know, and and the astrophysical, right? So. <sighs> And, and because both of them, like Samia Bashir in particular in Field Theories, is really amazingly bringing together uh, quotes by Black feminist thinkers and then lines from, you know, physicists. And um, in the poems that I look at, she's deploying physics principles to offer up a particular theory of gathering or a particular image or scene of gathering. Um, and so, yeah, and I think miraculously, one of the things that that both of those writers in chapter two do is enact, um, um, or expand the notion of the black ecological beyond the earthly, right? Beyond what, what tends to be figured as environment as we know it, right? Um, yeah. What if the environment can't be detected, right? What, like, you know, in what ways can the environment, does the environment exceed, one's capacity to sense it, right? But that doesn't mean that it's not there or not, you know, constitutive of one's understanding of relationality.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, all of that's great. And I definitely want to dig more into um, what you had to say about Morrison and, and that first chapter, especially. But I'm just, I'm curious if, if, if part one, you know, which is called gatherings are, you know, how that's maybe different from from part two. If folks are coming to your book, The Art of Gathering, sort of what's being distinguished there? So I just want to talk about that for a bit. And then I do want to dig into what you've just said about these, about the first two chapters that are contained within. Sure.
1: Um, So like, you know, when my kind of mode tends to be survey so that these are examples, right. Um, Literary and artistic examples of aesthetic practices. Right. And so the second part, um, the art of gathering is thinking about Leonardo drew, you know um, uh, with whom the project really sort of intellectually started um and alongside Gail Jones, right? And what do they, you know, what do they share um, as um aesthetic strat as formal strategies? Because they're very different as obviously as practitioners, but they're both abstractionists. And I actually think that Jones, I haven't seen, it doesn't mean you know it's not, but Gail Jones talking about talking about Gail Jones as an abstractionist, as part of a history of black abstraction, right? Um And because I I think that abstractional practices in Jones um, oftentimes, um, uh, you know, I think there's a kind of an ableist um, um, or even sort of heteronormative um, ways in which her literature gets critiqued or excluded as not offering positive representations or of, um, you know, not the way that she mobilizes voice is kind of putting pressure on straight and narrow kinds of respectable modalities of expressivity. And for Jones, it's less about what the words together say, but that the words themselves as objects, right? Um, In another conversation with some colleagues about the book, I said, you know, that's how Jones learns to write. She gathers because she, you know, it actually comes out of a gathering. She said, you I, know, I learned to write through listening. So already Jones's modality of authorship is multiple, right? She's, she's sitting with people and listening. So it's already a kind of multiple um, practice that comes out of a gathering. And I think what I really liked about putting Jones, So, so, okay. So, let me get back to the question so jones and drew um my engagement was that with them is to think about how both artists gather but not towards something right so gathering is an activity without enclosure it's not teleological there's not an end to it right it's about what bringing together now and and what bringing together enacts for different people um you know is ultimately the way right people experience the art but i was interested in the activity itself because i think the activity itself is very important for both artists right um you know jones talks about how she wanted to kind of regard words as these kind of rhythmical entities right and to and to and to listen and to be faithful to that listening and how she arranged right? Uh, For Drew, you know, and he, and I say that, you know, I say this in a quote um, by him in the introduction, he kind of listened to the objects, like, where did they want to go? The work is going to lead you by the nose, it's going to tell you where it wants to go, right? Um, And so, so I, you know, I think, I mean, maybe in some ways, it was an experiment in both, you know, a practice in terms of trying to look at these, you know, these two authors in this one section together, and then these, Um, other set of authors in this other section together. But I think I really wanted to get at um, um, that duality of gathering as literary image, right? Um, And figuration and gathering as an aesthetic practice that lines up with abstractional practices,
0: no, that's that's great. I mean, just hearing you talk about it really, you know, it's helping me sort of in my mind. It's helping me sort of lay claim more to to some of the arguments that you're making in both parts. Um, but I wanted to return just sort of briefly to thinking about that first chapter and a lot of the stuff that you had to say about about Morrison and Beloved, just because I think that that's such a rich text to in which to think about gathering, and I think you do a beautiful job with it. And I'm so I'm so um, struck by your, your reading of the last line, especially that this is not a story to pass on, because that's also uh, a line that has this sort of duality, the kind of uncertainty, the undecidability um, that you see in, see in uh, gathering. And so I guess I'm I'm curious about all the different forms of gathering in that book. You you, you focus on, on the clearing a, a great deal, also on the ice, but I'm curious about, you know, I, I just want to hear your thoughts, if you have ideas about you know the book itself and Setha's journey, right? I mean, to me, that book has always been so much about Setha's isolation and what frees her from the ghost of her daughter is in part her being welcomed back to the community. But before that sort of welcoming back is, is possible, we get to see, you know, those two women. It's one of my favorite moments in the book. And sorry that this is so long, but it's it's like, <clears throat> excuse me, it's women from the town and they're discussing Setha, and one is like expressing absolute contempt for her, you know. And, and another one isn't. It's a little bit sort of kinder. Uh, but but the tenor of the conversation is not only about the sort of act that Seth has committed, but the fact that she didn't even give the sort of townswoman a chance to understand it. Right. Like that is her crime, that she turned their her back on them out of pride, you know, before she could even give them a chance to either accept or reject her. And that's how the contemptuous woman sort of frames her desire to not to not. To not be in community with Setha. And so I just that that ending scene where all the women come in front of the house and kind of exercise the ghost, right? It's not a scene, and Morrison is 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 very clear about highlighting this. This is not a scene where they've all suddenly like Setha, but some other higher order calls them together. And so I guess I'm just I'm curious what you make of that scene. I'm curious, I'm just maybe I'm just curious about all of that because it's something that I think about often uh, with that novel, because it's just a favorite. To me, it's a really incredibly complicated, and complex depiction of community. They don't all like Setha. They don't all respect Setha, But even so, there's some higher order that calls them together to help her out.
1: Yeah, I think that's really great. And I think there's a couple things that I've um, sort of, you know, when you, you know, you, you know, the, I always think of like the book is like you're lear- kind of to demonstrate your learning, but also, you know that learning is ongoing right it's it you know it continues the more you write and the where you are in the book and so when i ended with leonardo drew one of the things that leonardo drew and Stephen bess you know none like us um kind of got me to thinking about this what does it mean to um, unmore gathering from community or from belonging right because you know you're right i mean so much of you know that book and and, and and beloved is at the end, quite literally, that the three women, right were on the margins of community, right. But it was some other kind of relation, right? It was some other kind of togetherness that was on the outskirts of community. And I think Morrison is inter- you know is interested in that in kind of expanding what sociality and what relationality means beyond community right? Um, And, and beyond community as visible and knowable, right? As other people, right? Um, you know, for example, thinking about, uh, you know, Setha returning to the place where the clearing happened, right? Where Suggs' speech and prayer happened and hoping that the feel of it or the sound of it would still be somewhere in the trees, right? So, so there's a kind of, um, you know, I think that with Morrison, I also think with Leonardo Drew, I also think this with (laughs) Gail Jones is that gathering, I think what happens when Gathering gets separated, even experimentally from ideas of belonging, right? From ideas of being together. And then the second piece is that gathering seems to be the condition of possibility of release, right? So quite literally the the group of black women gathering who arrive at the home release the spirit, right? Like they like it, it was integral. Their gathering was integral for a release, right. Um, and, you know, I think that that's been another part of learning from the book is that the, those have been that, the, the gathering is not, um, the condition of possibility of enclosure, right? I mean, that was, that's the other beginning, the, the, you know, the beginning of, um, you know, of, of, you know, that was marked by chattel slavery and, 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 and genocide and of the enclosed world of the enclosed body. Right. But then black literary and aesthetic practices thought about gatherings relationship. Right. To release. Right. Because even in Morrison's like instructs us, right. That the people came together to let it go. Right. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think that on the one hand, you're right. I think that Tony more like in beloved, she's on the, she's on the outs. Like she's on the outs. Um, You know, even the home is like on the outskirts, right, of town. And so she's on the outside, but there's relation there, right? And so I think it's about kind of putting pressure on what gathering could be. And then I think in that way, there's a sort of critique of normative ideas of, you know, community, right? Uh, Or normative ideas of identity that are, you know, conditional for community inclusion, Right? What you know? What would it mean to imagine a gathering that wasn't kind of predicated on somebody else's ideas of belonging, of who or what belongs? Now
0: mm-hmm. well, that's really fascinating. Well, I wonder. You know, so much of your reading of *Beloved* is 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 um, organized around this sort of concept of the home um, and how Toni Morrison is 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 resisting that concept. And I wonder if if the work that you see Nikki Walshlegger doing. Is different than that work, um, if it's complementary, if it's if you think they're two sort of distinct projects that nevertheless sort of help you sort of bear conceptually on this on this idea of the home. I'm just curious if we could yeah. say a bit about that.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that thinking about beloved and houses, Nikki Walshligger's um collection Houses Together, is um was really helpful to consider the aesthetic practices of homemaking where what i love about walshager's book houses is that each poem is a way of arranging homeness, right? Is a way of arranging, it's, it's an arrangement. Like the house isn't visible from the outside, but mostly it's visible. I mean, it is, I mean, it's, you know, this is the pink house, but the pink house becomes a house through the poet's detailing of how it's arranged. Where what's arranged are not just kind of like artifacts, you know, uh, you know, keys, but also moods and feelings and histories. And they all come together to create, this particular home. But the important piece too is that as a poem, formally speaking, what you know is not the kind of like entity that is the house, but what, what all of the interior, right. All the interior diversity that makes it. And so, you know, I think why I like, um, Walsh work alongside Morrison's is that I think it also um, helped me reorient my relationship to sort of interpreting Beloved less as um, Morrison's like eco-literary practice, but the eco-aesthetic practice, like quite literally how Morrison is arranging the home and arranging the environment or arranging words to create a feel of an environment. Right. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable, and this is only, you know, something that I only realized sort of after the fact, when I was engaging with um, Nikki Walsh poems is that the cover of houses, I don't know if you've seen it is, is bright red. I mean, it's, um, and there's that, you know, really iconic scene in beloved of the kitchen when Paul D enters, it was red. Like it was like a siren, like it locked him where he stood. And not that they're, you know, saying that, you know, Walsh Lager's cover is like a, a direct referent, but the the it, you know what calls you to a room and why is it that a, you know what happens when a seemingly innocuous space of care, right? like the kitchen kind of iconic like it's where meals are you know made and, and and also in the book in beloved, it's the kitchens are you know a place where people are healed, right? Um, and actually where Setha runs. Um. Uh. After killing her child, right? It's where she goes first, um, to meet Baby Suggs, and so, you know, the, but what happens when a kitchen is red? Right? It's quite literally the color of blood, and, and it's and that you feel it before you even walk in, and the role of color there, and so I think that Morrison, like Walsh, like, are are, are sort of really brilliant at this these kinds of. Um, Thinking about space sensually, thinking about the color of a room, um, what's in the room, um, you know, and the tastes that are shared in a room, like all of these kind of aesthetic um, qualities of an experience of a room. Like even when Paul D goes to the second floor of, um, you know, of the home, he says that the, the air was charmed and very thin. And it's so for me, it was it's. Like Quite literally, the house has its own ecosystems, and they're varied, and each room feels differently based on how Morrison arranges them. So I think in that way, I see this beautiful overlap between... I mean, they're written in different times, right? There's a 20-year difference, but there's a beautiful overlap between um, works, and there's also a really important attention to... um, the practice, right, of how rearranging one's home, like Black women writers' rearrangements of home on the page quite literally create other environments that people might go seek, right, um, which include the narrators themselves.
0: Yeah, that's very, it's reminding me just because I always teach it in my intro to Black women writers course, what you just said is is of uh, Alice Walker's, uh, our, our grandmother's gardens, you know. Our mother's gardens. Excuse me. In search of our mother's gardens, oof. And so everything you just said <clears throat> reminds me very much of that essay in terms of arrangement, in terms of everyday beauty, in terms of cultivation. Um, so no, that's great. Just because of time, I'm I'm, I'm going to skip around. I feel like we've gotten a I've gotten a chance to to really dig into your book, but there's a couple of other questions that I'm just kind of selfishly curious about. And that's just the periodization, right? Like all of the all of the texts in your book are the texts or the artworks are, are post 1970s. And so I'm curious about, about why, you know, about whether or not is, is that when black gathering as a concept can be sort of substantially observed, enacted, conceptualized, or is that just, you know, a preoccupation of your own? I'm, I'm just curious about that periodization, right? Is there a reason why it's post kind of 1970s?
1: You know, <sighs> I think the writers that I love are coming out of that particular period. So there's um, like, I was, I've been reading Gail Jones for a long time and Gail Jones, you know, um, is in the first book. Um, Toni Morrison is somebody I wanted to write about for a long time. Um, and so, no, I wouldn't say that like, you know, black gathering as aesthetic practice or strategy is like, n- absolutely not, not, not at all <laughs> like, simple to the, but, you know, but I do think that what I'm interested in, um, is that even though the book isn't, um, in direct conversation with, um, histories of black activism around environmental racism or environmental injustice. And it's not like, you know, for example, like a book like Tony K. Bambar's The Swelt Eaters, like there's, you know, there's, there's an evocation of environmental racism as a, as a liter, you know, as a topic within the text. Right. Um, but I'm curious about how these writers might be included in a larger trajectory of, of, of um, you know, po- black writers writing in the wake of um, environment activism around environmental racism that really kind of gets periodized um, like both environmental racism as a concept that's named politically, um, in the 1970s, right. As a space of black activism, um, that, you know, what would it mean to think about writers, you know, like Morrison in the eighties and, and Walsh and Jones and the set also in the seventies as actually, um, intervening within a discourse, um, of environmental justice and injustice by imagining other black environments that might be possible on the page. Right. Right. Um, And so I think in that way, that was the, you know, that, that's the one kind of um, thought I had is like, well, it's post 97. So what's happening in 1970s. Okay. Right. These writers, you know, this activism is happening, but what would it mean to think about even if environmental racism is not necessarily named and beloved it's also a book about environmental racism right um and she's engaged with the environment as racist right as you know um you know um as a place where um life is under siege right um and the earth gets extracted from right and people get extracted from and so so i think in that way I think the post 1970s is critical, even if it kind of started with these are the writers that I've always really been engaged with.
0: Yeah, no, That's excellent. Well, this has been, you know, this has been a really fantastic episode. I'm so happy that I got a chance to talk to you about your new book. And I'm apologies again for getting that subtitle wrong. No, not at all. Uh, but, the, <laughs> but the book is uh, Black Gathering, Art, Ecology, and Ungiven Life. And I've had the chance to talk with Dr. Sarah Jane Severnack today. And thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Brittany.